What is going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 18 of the Big Fly Pod with your co-host Christian Myers and myself, Ty Lewin. We're going to be recapping and finishing out the NL East preview with the Marlins, Phillies, and Nationals. We'll also be doing a little bit of a recap of the opening weekend of college baseball. Tons of upsets, uh, but we're going to go over the top storylines that came out of the weekend. Very exciting stuff there. Um, and we'll also be talking about some matchups for the upcoming weekend to check out. All right. Well, before we get into anything there, let's check in with our co-host, Christian. Christian, what's up, dude? What's up, man? We're just out here in Colorado, chilling in the snow, and I'm ready to roll tonight. I'm bummed I missed last week. It was a great interview. Check it out that Ty did. But now yeah. let's go. Sean was incredible. Please check out that interview if you're really – Intrigued about the upcoming World Baseball Classic, as that man knows everything in the game when it comes to international baseball and the WBC. Follow him on Twitter as well at Sean, I believe Sean underscore Spradling, has all the updates of what's going on, of what players are dropping out, what the uniforms are looking like, uh, along with rosters as well. But let's get back into the world of... MLB baseball, uh, spring training starting up here this weekend. Couldn't be more ecstatic about this all coming about. Looking at the rest of the NL East and starting with the Phillies. The Phillies were, of course, the underdog last year in the playoffs and uh, fanatically, no pun intended, uh, did end up in the World Series against the Astros. Just an incredible playoff run, and you saw the passion uh, for the city of Philadelphia, but um, pretty tough lately after the Super Bowl loss. Don't mean to bring that up. But looking at their projected lineup here for the 2023 season, leading off with their big free agent acquisition this offseason, Trey Turner at shortstop, Kyle Schwarber in the outfield and left, Rice, ha Rice Hoskins at first base, JT Riomuto, one of the best catchers in the game behind the dish, Nick Castellanos over in right field as well. Derek Hall at the DH position, Alec Bohm over at third base, Bryson Stott at second base, and Brandon Marsh. Manning center field, of course, with Bryce Harper's injury and surgery on his elbow. We won't be seeing him till the midseason. Looking at the uh, starting rotation, the projected starting rotation for the 2023 season, Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler, Taiwan Walker, free agent acquisition, Ranger Suarez, and Bailey Falter. Christian, looking at this lineup, looking at this rotation, you have an upgrade in certain positions. Am well, I, I the only am I the only one that's a little concerned about this starting rotation, though? No, definitely not. I think that there's a lot of question marks in that rotation after kind of those top two. I mean, Suarez is, you know, a good guy to have there. And we saw him do well for them last year as sort of a hybrid as a starter in some games, relief in some games. Um, but after after number three, I think it kind of drops off pretty hard. And I don't really know what to expect out of their rotation next year outside of that first couple guys. Yeah, I mean, you obviously have your horses there at the top uh, with Nola and Wheeler. And you really have to count on Ranger Suarez to be something special. I, I thought Taiwan Walker was given a little bit too much money and seems to just be continually on the rosters. But, I mean, looking at that lineup, I mean, that plays, of course, with how 
crazy dominant the top three teams are going to be uh, this year in the NL East with the Braves, the Mets, and the Phillies. If you're if you're looking at one particular player that had a down year last year in that lineup, who do you think that is? Who do you think is going to step up this year with, especially Harper being out? I mean, it's hard to kind of pinpoint one on that lineup, but I think probably Brandon Marsh is going to be the guy who steps up and does well. He did really well for them in the postseason and gained that momentum coming through. And I think going into next season, he's going to just ride the wave that he started building and do do really well so that when Harper comes back, it does become a, a question mark of where do you want who in that outfield? And if Marsh will be your everyday guy there, which I think he's going to be. Yeah. Now I know they have a few guys that are on the come up, but any particular prospects that we should keep an eye on here that could have an impact in 2023 or beyond? Yeah. Well, I think it actually is a good lead in by you on the, the starting pitching rotation and how it's a little bit of, of a cluster at the back end of it because Mick Abel and Andrew Painter are are two of their top prospects right now are both really, really dominant young pitchers. And once these guys get a little bit more minor league experience under their belt to start the year, I think if there's any sort of hiccup at the back end of the rotation, we're going to see one, if not both of these two guys come up and they are really, I mean, I know they're really, really high on both of them. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them get them up as soon as possible if needed and not wait around to see if anything happens with what they have there. So Mick Abel and Andrew Painter are the two names that I would say keep an eye on to make an immediate impact this coming season. Yeah, and to roll over to the next team here on our preview of the NL East, talking about pitching. Uh, an organization that has not shied away from bringing out some of the best arms here in the last couple of years. The Miami Marlins looking at their projected lineup here for the 2023 season with Luis Arias coming on over from the Twins in the Pablo Sanchez deal that happened here this offseason, manning the second base position. Gene Segura over at third base and a wonderful addition for them as well. Jazz Chisholm, the now... Uh, on the front of the MLB 23 show cover, uh, pretty sick cover that's going to be coming out here in a couple of weeks. Super excited about that. Manning the outfield being starting in, in center field with Luis Reyes coming in. Garrett Cooper over at first base, a VCL, VCL Garcia. I got that right. Obviously, yeah, what you said. In the outfield, Jorge Soler at the DH position, Joey Wendell at short, Brian De La Cruz in center field, an exciting prospect for them, and Jacob Stallings manning the backstop. Looking at the starting rotation, the uh, NL Cy Young winner this past season, Sandy Alcantara, Johnny Cueto, a free A agent acquisition, a very underrated, uh, solid acquisition for the Marlins this past offseason, Jesus Lazardo, a a lot of people are projecting him to have a very stellar year uh, here in the 2023 season. Edward Cabrera and Trevor Rogers, hope, hopefully that he has a comeback season uh, in 2023 as well. You look at the starting rotation and I say they got some guys. While on the offensive side, they added Arias and of course uh, Segura as well. 
My only concern for the Marlins was getting rid of Pablo Sanchez and getting a bat. Are they better now with this new addition, in your opinion? Or are we seeing another decline for the Marlins, which sadly we see pretty much every year uh, for the last couple of years? I definitely don't think that they're any better just making the one move. I think they could, you know, they're going to be probably in the same spot they were last year, finishing fourth in the division, only above the Nationals. Um, Arias obviously brings a lot of talent over being the reigning AL batting champion. But I don't think that just making that one play is going to do anything to really change the outcome of the Marlins season at all. Yeah, because it's kind of sad because it's it, you know the the Marlins seem to be on that route of looking to have this stellar pitching staff. You bring in Lazardo, um, Rogers, of course, had a great year a couple of years ago. You bring in Cueto as sort of that back of the end rotation guy that can really handle a lot of innings for you throughout the year. And to see Sanchez go, maybe kind of question what the direction of the organization is. I get it. Luis Arias is a wonderful contact hitter, um, had a 304 average last year, has, has been a consistent bat year over year. But it just felt as if that they kind of went away from the direction the organization is trying to go. I mean, you look at some of the players in this lineup, they have uh, guys that have been a part of the organization there for a couple of years, and it just felt as if um, – I don't know. Hopefully it works out for him because uh, Luis Arias is such a wonderful player to watch. Um, but just looking at this rotation and thinking if they have Pablo Sanchez to be in that potentially two, three spot, depending on how Lizardo does this year, uh, it was a little disappointing to see. Now, are there any prospects that we could see that maybe that's where their plan is and, and could potentially make an impact here this year? Or um, are we not seeing anybody currently that's going to make a major impact? I mean, Max Meyer is a prospect who could make an impact for them. He was their first rounder a couple of years ago out of Minnesota and came up a little bit last year and then had some arm trouble again. But I think if he comes back and does really, really well, I think that's such a good addition to their starting rotation. And again, is it really going to change much for them? Probably not, but that's a good sign for the future of what is to come for them. And then a position player prospect that I think could do well for them is Jacob Amaya, who is a young middle infielder that could see some time and be one of those guys who just adds another boost to that lineup. I mean, a good contact hitter going to be a good guy to have backing up jazz in the lineup. And I think that that could be a player that that does do something well for for Miami. And who knows what what they could do? I mean, if they can get everything to click, and they could be a really young team for the next couple of years. And if that happens, who knows what we'll see from them in the years moving forward? Great breakdown, brother, as always. We move into the last team of the NL East, uh, last in the division last year, but a part of some major, major deals that have happened over the course of the last couple of years, especially with the Juan Soto deal that happened last season. Baseball in general, I'm starting to hopefully see these blockbuster deals um, that are that really do make the game more exciting and, and definitely build up the fandom. 
We saw that this year with the Juan Soto deal, and now we're going to roll in through the projected lineup for the 2023 season for the Nats. Leading off with Lane Thomas out in the outfield, C.J. Abrams, man in the shortstop position, a player that came over in the Juan Soto deal. Joey Manessis at the DH position, Kiebert Ruiz uh, manning the backstop, Corey Dickerson, the outfield veteran guy that they picked up this past offseason, Yimer Candelario, an excellent third, underrated third baseman uh, that originally with the Tigers is now manning the third base position for the Nats. Luis Garcia at second base. Dominic Smith over at first base, a free agent acquisition as well. Finally, manning center field, Victor Robles. Looking at the starting rotation for this upcoming season, Josiah Gray, Patrick Corbin still on that major deal that uh, he signed a few years back. Trevor Williams, came on over in free agency as well, Cade Cavalli. And finally, their prize possession, Mackenzie Gore. Uh, again, another uh, addition that came from that Juan Soto deal. I mean, look, this is not a team that's going to compete here in the 2023 season, but what they did with that Juan Soto deal was so significant because they basically have now brought in all this young talent you don't have to pay them for six, seven years. You're able to build this team around some of these absolute studs and Abrams and, of course, Mackenzie Gore is going to be their future number one and ace. I mean, with your thoughts here, Christian, just as the team as a whole, like what do you think is kind of the, the, ceiling, the, the ceiling for this team and what they can do this year? Because I know it's low, but, I mean, are you seeing any – potential out of this squad whatsoever to do anything no okay thanks I, mean, I think i think if they uh i think if they're able to squeak together 60 wins i think that would be an impressive season for them just because of where the state of that organization is right now um i think they did a really good job trading trading soto and getting back what they got for him because they knew they weren't going to re-sign him. So they loaded up on a bunch of young guys to kind of go through a full, almost in-house rebuild. And I, I don't think we're going to see anything, you know, really, really good or dominant out of them, out of the Nationals for probably three years would be my guess until they can start you know, building up a little bit more with a couple of veterans. But the issue right now, obviously, is they don't have any – there's not any veterans worthwhile that are going to sign there um, and play until the young guys show that, you know, there is something there for the future. I uh, couldn't agree more. Thank you, Christian, for that breakdown. Now, let's get some Nats fans excited about something on this podcast. Um, you know, we don't show them a lot of love, um, which is, you know, both our faults. Uh, but sometimes it's something I really, really, truly don't want to talk about, but let's get them excited about something. What prospects are we looking at that, you know, a couple years, we're going to be potentially seeing them making a, a big swing in the league to turn the Nats around. Yeah. I mean, right away, the first name that pops into my head is Robert Hassel who came over from the Padres in that Soto deal. One of the best outfield prospects in his high school class a couple of years ago, uh, drafted, you know, first rounder out of a Tennessee high school. 
and just a really, really solid player. Good electric left-handed bat. I think he'll be able to come in when he gets there and could be, I mean, a rookie of the year candidate whenever they decide to bring him up. Um, will it be this year? Maybe, maybe in September or something for a September call-up. But whenever he does come up, I think he's going to be really, really good. And then on the pitching side of things, a guy to look at who we saw a little bit of last year and are going to see a lot more this year because he'll probably be in the opening day rotation is Cade Cavalli, who I was always pretty excited about watching him through out the minor leagues. And I think that over time he's going to develop into a pretty dominant pitcher and probably be the Nationals ace maybe in two years or something like that. Perfect. Fantastic breakdown, brother. Well, that rounds out our NL East preview. We're going to move on to the AL West starting next week. Super excited to continue uh, our progress through the league and the previews and giving our uh, listeners a better understanding of what the teams are projected to look like and uh, some names to watch out for the future. Now let's roll into our recap of the college baseball opening weekend. It did not disappoint upsets, walk-offs, tremendous showdowns uh, that we'll talk about here in a little bit. Uh, Just some stop, just top storylines to talk about. Um, Paul Skennis from LSU might be the most legit pitcher I've seen in a long time. Uh, This guy was 99, uh, 97 to 99 through six innings. He had one walk, uh, zero earned runs, three hits, and had 12 Ks against Western Michigan. Now, mind you, I know Western Michigan was a bottom-tier team in the MAC last year, but watching his stuff, his stuff will, of course, play in the SEC. He was touching 99, as I mentioned, right at the beginning of the game at the first pitch. Uh, and then was at 98 by the sixth inning. So this is a guy that is going to lead that team down the right path. LSU has, of course, had a couple down years uh, since they won the College World Series a few years back. Now it is looking as if this team is going to be on a roll. And uh, I may have made one of the worst uh, picks with saying Tennessee is going to win the SEC, specifically in the tournament. Um, That might still come to fruition. Uh, but LSU surely looks very, very dominant. Did you check them out at all, Christian, by chance? I didn't see any LSU games. I only watched a couple of college games over the weekend. Which I know we will get to here and we'll get to here in just a sec. But um, he was named the National Player of the Week. Just a guy that the fact that all this hype around the the idea that he was this two-way guy and, of course, with the whole two-way guy situation, you know, with colleges they want to put guys in uh you know sole positions of what they're going to do unfortunately we did not get to see skennis hit this weekend uh but would not be shocked to potentially see him getting a bat over the year the only problem is, is that lsu just has you know top to bottom one of the best lineups in the country and potentially in the history of college baseball um tommy white did uh injure his shoulder here this past weekend as well so that's a top storyline to look out for as obviously he was a highly touted guy last year with tommy tanks as his motto coming from nc state he got injured in that first game on friday night so we're hoping that he can get back on the field here as soon as possible other top storylines tennessee tennessee loses two of three at the mlb desert invitational this past weekend to arizona and grand canyon both fantastic ball games you could just tell that Tennessee didn't have 
kind of their swagger like they had all of last year. And, and of course, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going into this weekend. Uh, opening weekend, replacing seven to eight guys in their opening lineup um, across the board. Um, we, we unfortunately right now do not see – I always pronounce this guy's name wrong – um, Maui, how do you say his name? Maui Ahuna, um, who is a transfer from Kansas, who had an unbelievable year last year in the Big 12 as a standout freshman. He unfortunately is dealing with some NCAA issues and trying to get him uh, uh, basically cleared to play for this squad. Um, they ended up beating UC San Diego to round out the weekend. Chase Dolander, he pitched all right. Um, he still had a hell of a hell of a stat line with four and two thirds uh, did notch seven K's with one walk uh, did have two earned. chase burns. Uh, the number two guy who faced off against grand Canyon on Saturday looked absolutely electric. He was up to a hundred um, with a nasty, nasty curveball, uh, but did have a similar stat line to Dolander going four and two thirds as well. Now looking at the weekend, the Arizona game, I'm actually I felt bad for Arizona that they were not in the top 25 this year because they looked unbelievable against Tennessee with being Tennessee being the number two team in the country. And then Grand Canyon, of course, having their uh, celebration to um, win this past weekend against Tennessee with uh, Jacob Wilson having an unbelievable game. That kid's an absolute stud. Christian, with watching that game, your thoughts on Grand Canyon's uh, little celebration at the end? Yeah, what a joke. Um, I picked Grand Canyon a couple weeks ago when we did our college preview to be the mid-major team to watch this year and was a team that I thought could make some noise. And they made it right away when they came out and, you know, they beat whoever they played in the first game. And then they played Tennessee and it was a, a really good really good game on both sides of the baseball. And they had this pitcher that came in at the end for the last couple innings who, I mean, dominated them, did very, very well. And then they beat Tennessee at the end and waved them off the field and celebrated like they had just won the College World Series. And I I understand, I mean, being a guy who played at a mid-major, I understand the excitement of, beating a power five school, especially an SEC school who's ranked really, really high. Um, you know, when I played at UNLV, we beat we beat ASU one year when they were the number five team in the country. We beat, we beat Texas Tech when they were number three in the country. Um, but we never waved them off the field or went and basically dogpiled behind the mound. Um, I thought that was ridiculous. Like, act like you've been there before. And then you've done that because you're all division one players at the end of the day. And then the fans, you know, doing the overrated chant, it, it's the fans. So it is what it is. But I thought that was um, a little bit uncalled for, especially with a team like Tennessee and then Grand Canyon, the next two days goes out and loses to Michigan and then got rolled by Michigan state. So they're clearly, you know, not good enough to be waving Tennessee off the field after they beat them. But to go with your SEC pick, I think Tennessee is going to keep that in the back of their heads for the entire year because that's the kind of guy that I think Vitello is. And he's not going to let them forget that 
the Grand Canyon Antelopes waved them off of their field in the first week of the season. Um, so yeah, that's my thoughts on it. I thought it was a little bit ridiculous. No, and totally valid points. You know, you could see the energy throughout the weekend, throughout all of college baseball, from the bat flips to, um, you know, the celebrations with the walk-off homers or, you know, a big strikeout. College baseball has that energy that a lot of people aren't familiar with and are truly going to see this upcoming year. But unfortunately, there is sometimes that kind of, uh, how do you call it, um, I would say ceiling, like we talked about earlier, just of what you can and can't do. Uh, Grand Canyon, you haven't, you know, been to uh, a super regional. I don't think uh, they haven't even been to the College World Series. And like you said, they're a pick of yours to go this year. So that was kind of tough to watch, but overall, uh, an electric game. And then I think Tennessee was a little pissed off. They took it out on UC San Diego, winning seven nothing. And then Alabama, poor Alabama AM. Uh the first three to four innings had a shot. Um, but oh man, uh towards the end of that game, uh, next thing you know, it's 10-0, and then they beat them 23 to 1. So I think Tennessee got their rage out a little bit on uh some of these other teams. So shout out Grand Canyon for that. Um yeah, they, yeah. What's sorry, you have something to add? Oh, uh, I was gonna say, yeah, I agree. And you know, one of it's kind of a two-fold system with that whole whole post-game celebration thing, right? Because I think everything gets looped back to when Texas State beat Texas and they flashed the horns down to them. But that's an in-state matchup against kids, you know, kids who go to Texas State that are from Texas who grow up wanting to be Longhorns but weren't good enough to go. And so that's kind of, you know, that's when it's that's when it's okay. Like if Austin P University would have beat Tennessee – then yeah, they could do whatever they wanted um, after the game. But when you're, I mean, you know, not even close to Tennessee and you're not the kids that are going to be getting recruited or getting an opportunity to be seen by that school, just keep it in check. Act like you've beat a big team before. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the best. So we'll see. We'll see if Tennessee can turn around this upcoming weekend. Uh, but now rolling into our final storyline with the college baseball showdown that happened in Arlington, Texas this past weekend. Just an awesome uh, event that's been happening the last couple of years since the Ranger Stadium had opened. Um, we saw TCU, Missouri, Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma State and Vanderbilt, uh, quite a few top 25 teams and incredible matchups across the board. TCU and Missouri rounding out the weekend at two and one. So did Arkansas as well and Vanderbilt, Oklahoma State excuse me, was at one and two and Texas, the biggest disappointment of the weekend went and three, a team that is legitimately replacing their entire lineup uh, and have some uh, injury issues with their pitching rotation. Overall TCU looked electric uh, Missouri, sort of that big shock of the weekend, you know, beating Texas six to five uh, and beating T- TCU on Sunday, uh, nine to eight and 10 innings. What an incredible game that was as well. Uh, overall, just a wonderful weekend of college baseball. Looking at the top five now, Tennessee looks to, from Baseball America standpoint, has dropped to the to sixth after being actually left at around uh, the third position uh, after the weekend. Seems like things have rounded out. 
Uh, LSU, of course, number one. Florida now at the number two spot. Stanford staying consistent at number three. Louisville at number four. And Vanderbilt rounding out the top five. Looking at the matchups for the weekend as we uh, sign off here in just a few minutes. Maryland versus Ole Miss, number 13 Maryland, uh, coming off uh, a decent weekend uh, against uh, University of South Florida. You know, still a solid program, went two and one on the weekend, uh, and then unfortunately lost to West Virginia. So I have a big series at Ole Miss, which will uh, definitely, that, that environment is going to be absolutely insane, especially after winning the College World Series last year. Ole Miss had a great weekend as well. Uh, they were incredibly dominant, so this should be a wonderful matchup. North Carolina versus East Carolina, a 12 versus 11 matchup. North Carolina has uh, some players on their team right now that are uh, potentially going to be some uh, first, second, third rounders here in this year's draft and next year's. Uh, and East Carolina, who was a super regional participant last year, unfortunately did not make it. What a environment that will be at East Carolina. Definitely recommend checking out that matchup. Finally, rounding out uh, our matchups to watch UCLA number 17 versus number 10 Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt coming off a like Tennessee in the fact of coming into a difficult schedule coming out two and one. Uh, but unfortunately, Vanderbilt uh, had lost a real, real tough one uh, here yesterday. Just want to pull that up really quick. They unfortunately had lost to where are you at? Either way, let's see here. Who did Vanderbilt lose to? Who did they lose to? Vanderbilt lost to... Nah, they'll come back to me. But either way, going to be a fantastic matchup there this weekend as well in Tennessee, and that uh, SEC crowd will do just fine. So that really wraps up all our college baseball talk along with the NLE's preview Christian, anything else uh, before we sign off here for the listeners? Spring training games start on Friday. so Oh, not Saturday. Okay, out, correction there. Um, if you want to start checking out a couple of of teams and see, you know, who they've got rolling out, I think usually the first few games is a lot of minor league guys mixed in a little bit. So, um, yeah, those get fired up on Friday. Perfect. And it was Central Arkansas who Vanderbilt lost to. Like we said, folks, there was a bunch of upsets. If you're not somebody who watches college baseball, um, all you got to do is go through the ESPN app and you'll be able to watch all the games. They're on all Friday, all Saturday, all Sunday. Throw a game on, especially with some of the matchups we talked about. And of course, as the season rolls along, we'll continue to highlight the top matchups uh, as we roll into the conference season. Well, Folks, thanks so much for tuning in. We always appreciate you taking the time to listen in uh, during your during your weeks. And uh, hopefully this was a episode that you enjoyed. And we'll uh, talk to you here next week and hopefully be have some spring training news. Thanks, everyone.